Salam and welcome to episode 120 of the TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim and Rukshana joins me once again as my co-host on this podcast. So this week we're joined by Maz Salim, who is a, an activist, an educator and a justice campaigner. Um, her story is one that I think some people may be aware of, um, but in my opinion, my humble opinion, not many people um, are too aware of her story and particularly um, the in- incidents that took place in 2013 surrounding her father, um, who was a tragic victim of a terrorist attack in the UK in Birmingham as he left the mosque um, after Isha prayers. And I think it's it's one I, I mentioned to her right at the beginning of the podcast that w- when I came across the story, I was kind of stunned that I, I wasn't aware of it. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of the details of what happened and the fact that there was a whole campaign and bombs were planted and detonated outside of mosques in Birmingham um, targeted anti-Muslim uh, terrorist attacks um, but it, it hasn't had the sort of um, attention that it deserves in, in the media and, and from the government and, and in just general kind of reporting um, so, so Maz tells us about her, her first-hand experience, I guess, of facing this and also the work that she's gone on to do um, after that, particularly being involved with Shukri Abdi's case, who was a 12-year-old girl who, who died in um, Bury in what's officially being stated as an accident. Um, but there's a lot of controversy around her particular case. Uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Maz. Just a quick trigger warning before we get underway with the podcast. We do talk about issues surrounding hate crimes um, and there are descriptions of violence and murder which some people may find distressing. Salam, Maz. Thank you very much. And and Rukshana as well. Thank you both for for, for joining me yesterday. Um, So like I was, we just said off air, uh, we we actually recorded this podcast like two, three years ago um, and we had some technical issues and so we lost the the entirety of the recording, unfortunately. So we're 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 back for round two, trying to do this again. Um, so thank you again, I, I guess, for agreeing to come back. Uh, we've had a few of these kind of technical issues in in the last few weeks, and and it's uh, frustrating, but you know we we, we get by. Um, right. So I guess to to kick off with, I think that for context, when I came across your personal story and your father's story specifically um i was quite alarmed at the fact and this was like going back a few years but i was quite alarmed at the fact that i hadn't come across it sooner and it wasn't more prominent in the kind of mainstream um and there wasn't talk of this or reference of this as a particular case of uh anti-muslim terrorism that had taken place on uk soil um and i think what's again quite alarming is that I only stumbled across it because I was kind of researching and I was trying to prove a point in an article or something that I was putting together um, and I saw this and then I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole of finding out more and, and it was just astonishing that I, I there was no prominence to this so I guess I assume that a lot of people listening to this may not have come across yourself or your father's story so would you be able to very briefly kind of recap um, what happened and how your family's life changed in 2013? Yeah, of course. Um, On the 29th of April 2013, that is going to be eight years uh, this year. Um, My father, Mohammed Saleem, was 82 years old at the time. And um, he prays at the local masjid, which is Green Lane Masjid, which is at the end of our street. 
Uh, he's done that most of his life uh, and he prays it five times a day. And that particular day, everyone saw dad going to the masjid, uh, going back and forth, um, you know, to read all his prayers. On this particular night, um, he went to read his Isha prayers. And um, when he left the mosque around about 10 past 10 p.m. on this particular night, actually, dad wasn't feeling great. Normally, my uncle goes with him to the mosque and comes back and on that night my uncle had some relatives so he basically said oh I have to go home my dad's like you go oh don't worry I'll walk um you know because it's just it's not far it's just at the end of our road and um on this night my father was followed home and uh you know, on the CCTV, everyone who lives on our street, because not, not many people on our street have double glazing, they can hear dad because he's like normally walking in the middle of the road because it's a quiet cul-de-sac area and he's got his walking stick and he's normally hitting a Coke can or something on the street. And on this particular night, you can notice on the CCTV, he's walking quite fast and then he crosses over the road to the school gate and um, he was basically followed home Um uh, by a neo-Nazi uh, called Pablo Lapshin, who'd only been in the country for five days and who got a British spon sponsorship, who shook the hand firstly of the British ambassador in Ukraine, then got a sponsorship in Smallheath, a predominantly Muslim area, and lived on the premises of Dalcam. He followed my father home on this night and stabbed him to death from behind. Um, and uh, then he went on a three-month bombing campaign uh, and pulled bombs outside now bombs outside three mosques in Warsaw, Wolverhampton and Tipton. This was one of the biggest acts of terrorism on UK soil yet today as you've already explained not many people have heard about it the media have played it down you know at the time you know uh, of dad's death where they we were prime suspects that's how uh, how disgusting uh, it was West Midlands police the way they treated our family they came to our house and they told us we're going to tell you this isn't a racist attack and, and we said, you know, how can you tell us it's not a racist attack? You know, they tried to look, they looked at every other motive, but hate crime was never a possible motive. And, you know, we were suspects in this case as well. And it was quite disgusting because if had they not caught Pablo, they were ready to pin this on one of uh, one of my family members. And that's how appalling West Midlands police were the way they treated us um, and they that we were suspects you know in a Muslim household when you're doing off source you know when you're paying your respects men and women are segregated they had um, male uh, family liaison officers with goggly eyes just sitting in there staring at all of us like looking at us like it, it was us and I do understand that a lot of cases there's quite a high number of cases where certain cases are family related but in this particular circumstances they weren't and we made that clear and um, yeah, we had a very challenging time with West Midlands Police and uh, yeah, we went back, they weren't taking our complaints seriously. And prior to this, six months earlier, uh, my brother's gym, um, who's got a gym on Comptry Road, was receiving threatening letters from the EDL saying, if you don't close your terrorist gym, because predominantly Muslims go there, um, you, you just wait what will happen. And a lot of these letters were going out in the area. And we showed those to the police saying, could it be linked? But they didn't take any of it seriously. And then six months later, our father was murdered. And this neo-Nazi was a known neo-Nazi in Ukraine. He's from Dnipritov, which, um, and again, he, he was making open plan bombs there in the forest. So a known neo-Nazi gets a British sponsorship. Where's the counter-terrorism bill? How did we allow these Nazis into the country? And then he went on his bombing campaign in Warsaw, Wolverhampton, Tipton. How did he know his way around 
the West Midlands, because I didn't even know where half these masjids were. And then when I started looking into um, his 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 Facebook pages, he was he was a, a big follower of uh, of um, Timothy McVeigh. You know, all the the, the far the far right neo Nazis, and uh, and you know there was you know he had a file on his folder which was the you know uh, ethnic cleansing um, when they did. Uh, find him so there was a lot to this case that people don't know about and a lot of police negligence in this case which which made us all very frustrated because they wouldn't believe us um and you know when the counter-terrorism came in they were a lot more respectful in the sense of speaking to us and telling us keeping us informed and you know one minute they're saying it was a, a small pen knife that killed dad, but it was a hunter's knife. You know, they tried to play down the, the severity of the attack. And, uh, you know, and we challenged them every step of the way. And literally they said to us, because um, dad's body was in the mortuary, sadly, for months. And because we kept challenging them, we knew they used this as a reason not to release his body because we were challenging them. And they were like, um, literally, if you don't drop the complaints, if you don't drop these complaints, then, you know, literally, you have to drop these complaints and release the body. So three months later, our father was in the mortuary for months. And you know how agonizing that was for my mother and for all of us. We had seven inquests, seven inquests, and the coroner sat there, like, playing the role of God. And the first inquest, he was really, like, you know, supportive. And then by the time, in the middle of the inquest, he, you know, he went on a two-week break, like, knowing how agonized and you know islamically how wrong this is okay we we understand is in sudden death in murder cases you have to have you know maybe three weeks or four weeks for dragging it on and this was deliberately done because we were challenged the police we were our complaints were never never met they were never answered they never got to the chief commissioner's uh, desk at the time we were told to drop the complaints and they'll release the body and, uh, you know, Alhamdulillah, dad's body was eventually released in the month of Ramadan. So, you know, for this, you know, it made us feel a little bit um, relaxed, you know, that, you know, in the holy month of Ramadan. But it was really, really traumatic. And uh, there's a lot to know about our case that, you know, many people don't know. And sadly, today, it's still not even recognized as an act of terrorism in the British media. I've gone back and forth with the BBC to to say why have you not addressed my father's uh terrorist attack as an act of terrorism because pablo lapshin was given 40 years under the terrorism laws um and i've gone back and forth with them and they're like well in comparison to lee rigby who was murdered three weeks after my father's death and uh theresa may went out with the cobra meetings mosque condemned the attack but no one, no one did that for us. Uh, there was a deafening silence. Um, when we tried to organize protests and uh, and to speak about it, the police, um, you know, were communicating with Green Lane Masjid and telling them to tell the local community not to attend uh, the protest. So they'd use the masjid to silence the protest. Um, and it was quite disappointing to see that. And uh, it, it's, it's been a struggle up until this day. That's why I fight and I campaign because I don't want any other family to go through the pain we went through. And uh, just re reliving all what I'm telling you is really, really painful because what they did to our family and how they treated us, you, it should, no one should be treated like that. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I appreciate and can imagine that it's very difficult uh, recalling and recollecting kind of everything that happened because I, I think when I, when I hear you talking I, I think about um, you know everyone has lost someone that they love uh, in some sort of circumstance and capacity and that's always an incredibly difficult time 
um but to to then have the kind of extreme circumstances of it being a murder and not only that but also a terrorist attack um and you mentioned that your family were seen as prime suspects in the case and the police kind of mishandled or mistreated you um outright and 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 you know made you suspects as opposed to, as opposed to victims um if you don't mind just kind of uh elaborating a little bit more on on just the initial um i guess experience and and shock and trauma that that you that you went through um how how did you as a family kind of overcome that and and was there kind of community support because you also you also spoke about the community and how they were being advised not to necessarily come out and support you what was it like on day one because also i think you know right now as you mentioned it's been eight years since your father was tragically killed um you have the kind of almost the benefit of hindsight where you can look back and see all the different turns that the case took and and everything that led up to um is it pavlo is his name being uh imprisoned and and charged and whatever else but initially um that must have have been a huge jolt and, and i guess it's what also triggered your own kind of um career if we can call it that in in social justice and, and fighting as you said you know so that people don't experience yeah. what, what your yeah, family course, did yeah. um so initially so i was in london at the time so um I was in my flat and um, because uh, and then I got a phone call uh, for my oh, for my second my my third oldest sister uh, Fawzia and she said oh you know uh, what are you doing are you, you you know are you sitting down I was like why what, what's going on and she said dad's been stabbed and then I was like what and she said look I can't talk to you I've got to get to the house and she literally put the phone down and then literally minutes later my older sister the oldest sister Shazia called me and said dad's dead and I was like the shock of it at the time for me was like you know it was about 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 11 o'clock at night and uh and I literally wasn't even dressed I would just started packing I had to meet my older sister in Pina I was in Whitechapel um, you know, I, my glasses were just covered in tears. I, I just packed a bag of socks. I didn't know what I was doing. I rushed to Whitechapel Station and I um, I just don't know. Someone was pushing me onto the tube. You know, when you don't know how to get there and someone's advising you and you're in tears and they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I got to Pinna and my brother-in-law came out of the car and he just hugged me and we drove to Birmingham. And then when we got to Birmingham, we got there late. So at the time um, when it happened, it, we got there in the early hours of morning so we went straight to the hospital but my brother was saying obviously all the roads were closed the tent was set up you know no one could get access to to the area and um it was a big shock in the community because dad was very very uh um looked highly upon in the community because he did a lot for the community you know he helped the young youth who was choosing wrong paths you know in that area there's a lot of drug dealing a lot of crime you know he advised them you know this is not the right path so you know he 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 had so many young supporters you know we saw this a testament was on his janaza you know there's thousands of young children talking to us about what dad did for them so you know in the at the time when it when it happened you know the area was completely shocked the community was shocked um you know the local masjid where dad literally lived you know most of his life you know everyone was shocked you know that so much respect for him they could not believe this could happen to an elderly muslim man you know the shock that someone would target someone so old with a walking stick that in itself you know trying to comprehend that you know any religion any faith 
you know, to kill an elderly person is just mm. just wrong at, at all levels, no matter what, what whether it's racist, any reason at all. Um, so, yeah, the initial su uh, support was beautiful. You know, obviously our communities got together. They were cooking for us. You know, they were there in the house. Everyone's reading Quran together, you know, just trying to deal with it. But as it went along and people, you know, the police were putting misinformation in the community, um, trying to find out information, you know, things like, you know, the, the roads should have all been closed because the attacker was still on the loose because they didn't find Pablo straight away. They found him. Um, they found it three months, you know, they found it three months like, like later after the, the bombing campaigns. So he was on the loose. So the area was scared because they knew there was there was someone in the area putting bombs outside. An elderly Muslim man has been. Can, this can was I ask a quick question? Sorry, because really cool. uh, you mentioned you mentioned earlier yeah. as well that it was three months before he was caught. So in that three month time, uh, and, and you just spoke about the kind of fear in the community in that three month time, what, what was going through everyone's heads in, in Small Heath in, in Birmingham? There, were, there was a, it was a very, I remember that summer was very, everyone was panicking. They were quite scared because they knew an elderly man had been, uh, you know, a respectable elderly pious man had been murdered. And then suddenly we were hearing um, a lot of stories, you know, in the area that there was incidences happening, um, you know, there was far right in cars and there were outside mosques and, and there was threatening behavior and, you know, people were linking it to this. And then suddenly, um, you know, there was the bombing campaigns and, you know, I don't know if you know um, that when these bombing campaigns happened in, in, uh, in, in the West Midlands, the negligence from the police as well at the time, they didn't go when the when the first bomb went off, the nail bomb went off uh, in Warsaw, I think it was, they arrested an 82 year old elderly worshiper for that. You know, he went to check what this school bag was after it went out because there were nail bombs. Um, the one in Tipton shattered all the windows of the local area. So again, you know, and then the police went there and then they drove off. They didn't really think there was anything going going on um and the way they handled the bombings as well was completely ne negligent as well you know and i had a when Theresa may finally showed her face and we had this private meeting it was in the tipton masjid with the with the, all the imams from the masjid and uh, they spoke about the negligence and how they didn't invest failed to investigate it properly at the time and how they arrested worshippers you know thinking they were the the perpetrators of the attack um and i just sat there in shock and it's funny because on the way to this meeting, the counterterrorism police don't really get on with West Midlands police. And they're like, look, you can say anything you want. We don't care. Go for it. So I did. And I said to Theresa May, you know, why is it taking you so many months to come and see us? You know, you've, you've gone out your way for Lee Rigby. But for us, you've taken very long. And, you know, the negligence uh, that we've faced and these must mosques are telling you, the imams are telling you what they went through. And she could not really answer any of the questions either. You know, it's like they pick and choose what they want to, what what looks what looks good in the media. When it's a Muslim that is the victim of these acts of terrorism, they never want to. They never want to put it in the media. They always want us to demonize us and dehumanize us. And uh, yeah, I, I did go for it when I was uh, when I was um, sat in front of her. But um, sadly, you know, the community were deeply devastated. They were very, very scared at the time. Um, remember sitting in the masjid when we were reading, uh, when we we're doing, um, you know, in the 40 days, 
we were sitting in the masjid and there was a lot of fear and panic people hearing stories that you know they you know they they've been spat at there's cars driving around with you know the far right terrorizing people in the area this was a really scary summer for people so when they did finally catch pablo latchin which today i will definitely say he was not a lone wolf as they have pushed it out in the media because how could someone from ukraine come to small eve on a government sponsorship and know his way, know which masjid to target. So Green Lane Masjid was in the news for uh, preaching terrorism and then Channel 4 had to apologise, but it was only a small and large call in the paper at the time. So there was a reason for him, there was a reason for him targeting the masjid. So um, the Tipton Masjid, apparently one of the Guantanamo Bay prisoners went to this masjid and there was a reason because they found a lot of... uh, uh, they found a lot of Daily Mail cuttings in his in his room in in uh, Birmingham because he was living on the premises of Dalcam, which is behind the small leaf Asda, right? So for him to live on the premises as well, it's quite like it's, it's I don't know, you know, to live on the premises of a company that it's all very suspicious. And we we've looked into it, and we know definitely he we 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 believe he was working with the far right in the UK for him to come. Maybe Dad was an initiation killing for him, and then he went on to do the free mass bombings. Bombings, you know, there's a lot more. We have to think with an open box and not go with the police narrative. It was a lone wolf because how would he know his way around all these masjids? You know, there's a specific reason why he was targeting each place. And if you look into it, you know, maybe the, you know, the, with the Guantanamo Bay prisoner, you know, uh, at the Tipton Masjid was was a main reason. Green Lane Mosque because he was living, he was staying by opposite the Gomkul Sharif Masjid, which is why didn't he target anyone there? You know, so we have to kind of have a really open mind about how these Nazis allowed into the country, first and foremost, without being checked. Uh, And he's a no Nazi. He actually blew up his own house in Ukraine because he was making a chemical bomb. And his neighbors um, said he blew up the windows all smashed out. So he he has a, a police record. And he's also a Dynamo Kiev fan, which is a, a known Nazi football team. And then all this Nazi literature he had as well. So we have to look at these cases a bit more and not just go with what the police say, lone wolf, lone wolf, lone wolf. Believe me, there he was definitely not a lone wolf. You know, someone from uh, this little village in, in Ukraine comes all the way to small heat Birmingham, gets a, gets a placement in a predominantly Muslim area to create a race war. You know, how it's just, uh, there's definitely more to it. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to mention here that um, racially and religiously aggravated hate crimes by police, uh, which were recorded by police in England, in Wales has increased and the number of offences recorded by police from 2019 to 2020 has increased year on year by 34% in June and the majority of those religious hate crimes target Muslims so there clearly is an issue and uh, a lot of the work that you are doing now you I, I read somewhere that you actually went to quite a few marches with your dad anti-racism marches um yeah, yeah the, how you know you because I think even though you, you've gone through this tragic um uh, experience your father was a bit of a feminist as well wasn't he really empowered all of you guys to take part in all this stuff and I think it'd be nice to hear you know that journey how you started really 
Yeah, when we were younger, you know, dad was, you know, he came to the UK in 1957. Um, he was very young and very handsome. And he was basically was working at uh, Aston Steelworks when he came here. And um, and then obviously, you know, a lot of our relatives were here in the U UK at the same time. And after World uh, War II, when he came here to do the jobs, basically the British didn't want to do. They invited, uh, you know, a migrants and immigrants from, from all across uh the world to come and come and work here and uh when dad came here initially he was faced with a lot of racism but he didn't let that define him he spoke about it a little bit but he didn't let it define him and he always for us he always wanted the best for us he always he wanted to, he, he had you know five daughters and he always wanted us education he kept saying education is key knowledge is power you know he used to make me read the daily jong to him just so my urdu would be more correct and you know because we used to go to masjid after school and you know you do your quran and you had these classes and you know and he was encouraging us all you know definitely you have to study in our community in small leaf sadly at the time there was a lot of arranged marriages a lot of forced marriages he used to you know speak to families you know where daughters were like look we don't want to get married to this person and he used to try and mediate with parents as well to say look you know give your children the opportunities to study and you know in our community alhamdulillah so many of those girls today are graduates and there's and they're like it's thanks to your dad that spoke to our parents at the time so he was extremely empowering um, as a father for us to study and get the best education as possible um so when he he, he was here he you know he did a he, 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 he loved, you know, the Pakistani politics and obviously Kashmir. We went to a lot of Kashmir de demos and anti-war protests uh, that were held in Victoria Square. So, you know, in that, that respect, he always made us, made sure that we understood what was going home in our own homeland, as well as what was going on here in the UK as well. So can you tell us more about the work that you've done since, I know you worked for Stand Up to Racism, um, you were uh, responsible and organised a Stand Up to Trump movement in the UK in 2016, which over, I think it was a million people attended. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about the work that you've done since then? So since my, so when, when dad was murdered, I, I was like, you know, all of us were dealing with it differently. You know, you know, my, my, my family is extremely pious, you know, it's, a lot of them turned to the Quran. I turned to, uh, obviously I was reading the Quran a lot as well, but I, I felt like I needed to do something. I couldn't just sit at home and wonder what the hell is going on? How did my father, you know, looking out my window, I can see where dad's been murdered. Can you imagine? I, we have to walk past that every day. My mom has to walk past it. She always stands by the masjid because it's just opposite the Morrisons. And, and stand, like dad used to sit by the window. So she always stands there and she grieves literally still today. You know, she has to go for that. So for me to sit home and, and I was getting anxiety and I just was a, you know, I just felt like, you know, you, you're lying in your bed thinking, you know, you, your, your head's just going to all different places. And, you know, I had to just put that and make it myself more productive and do something to help others as well. So I was in town, actually, and I saw um, uh, someone, th th this young white lad on a megaphone, and he was talking about my dad going, do you know Mohammed Salim? Do you know what happened to him? And I was like, oh, my God, like, who's this person? So I just literally started following him around. Brand, like who are you <laughs> like and he went up to his stall and he he was from a stand-up to racism and um and I basically that's how I got into it so I was like look I want to get active I want to do this so at the time I think in 2013 was when stand-up to racism actually launched themselves and uh, so I kind of 
started working alongside them, helping them to build their movement and speaking at schools, speaking at colleges, speaking at universities, um, helping to build their protests. Um, and, 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 you know, that's how I started to get into it. And then from that, I worked at, um, I also worked at Stop the War Coalition um, at their offices full time for about two and a half years, um, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a, like an organizer and organizing and building the the Muslim side of it, bringing getting more people on board, um, and uh, you know those th those were obviously my build up. I was so passionate, and obviously the Palestinian cause is very passionate for all of us, you know. So that as well to get into get more into that as well. So and then obviously my independent campaigning and helping like the family of Maria Mustafa who was who was who was who was um, sadly bullied, uh, who was beaten to death in Nottingham uh, by a group of girls. And, you know, I went to Nottingham and, you know, tried to help the family, we helped rehouse them to another house because they were still being attacked by these bullies because they kind of all got off and they were treated with a lot of institutional failures and, uh, you know, the systemic um, institutional racism within our own systems that uh, that don't help refugee families, you know, is so blatant and so out And the way this family was treated was appalling, appalling at every avenue. They would not let, because the, the family couldn't speak English very well. They were spoken down to, no, you know, no one would listen to them. So, you know, um, I, with the help of Louise Regan from the National Education Union, you know, she's from Nottingham. So we helped them get rehoused and we tried to help help them rebuild their lives and, uh, and you know, to help um, with that case as well. So for me, it was all about, you know, I have no agenda. I don't get paid for the work I do. I do it out of love and passion. And I've been doing it up until this long because I feel like, there's not enough um, voices out there. And when Muslim women especially stand a strong stance and try and speak uh, the truth, they're faced with a lot of misogyny within our own communities um, and the way people look down on us, they don't get why we're doing it. We need to be making money. You know, if we don't have money in the bank, you know, you're not respectable enough. You know, we do live in such a materialistic type of mentality in, in, in all cultures, but specifically, you know, I went, I've been through all of this and I've faced a lot of challenges still today, but I still persevere on. And this is why I think it's important for my workshops, Education for Peace, to be prominent inside workplaces. I did a, a, a one for a huge corporate company recently, is my first one uh, for Islamophobia Awareness Month. And they, it was a very white middle-class um, Tory, <laughs> mainly Tory crowd and yeah as as my workshop finished finished um they had so I, I asked for some feedback so firstly I was accused of being anti-semitic because I'm pro-palestinian and secondly anti-lgbtq because I wrote an article about Mariam Nawazi and her Islamophobic placards at the pride march so they took everything out of context and I've got to realize that if I'm going to build these workshops and be like I was actually really nice you know considering how vocal and how um abrupt I can be I was very nice in this workshop I you know it's all about peace and equality and the fact that the even doing that some people can't handle the truth they don't want to listen to the Muslim side of uh Muslim side do you understand and working in this corporate work first workshop and the feedback was generally 80% of it was good, but I wanted to know what wasn't good. And when they told me, and I was like, so can we provide some evidence of where I've been this and where I've, where, so how it, I've been anti-Semitic? It was nothing based on what you delivered on the day. It was more the context of who you are and what you've done. 
yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, my works. Yeah, I, nothing I to do with that. Because um, I, I do want to continue talking about the, the work that you're doing today because I think you, you've gone on to do some, some really important and interesting things. But there's one thing I, I want to kind of understand because you, you spoke about how after your, your father's uh, murder, you kind of channeled your energy and your effort into um, fixing or, or addressing, let's say, structural um, racism and issues that, that we face within the system. But when, you're, when you talk about uh, your encounter with Theresa May, um, how the police dealt with things, I, I can see there's, there's obviously a lot of passion, but also a lot of anger, um, I think, from yourself. And mm. I guess the, the question that I had is that has working in this area kind of helped with channeling that anger or addressing it or do you still kind of feel as angry as you did on day one with how your family was treated with how the police treated the case and everything else like how how, how have you i guess learned to overcome the anger that you had from day one you can never get over that you know even talking to to you about it now how my mother was treated how we were spoken down to how they basically thought thought we were uh, a family that couldn't speak english and again this is where my dad's knowledge comes in that this is why he wanted his children to study and be educated because when stuff like this happens to you the way authorities can come down on you thinking you cannot uh, you cannot fight back and we fought back you know, as soon as they said, oh, this is not a racist and we're going to tell, we said, we're going to tell you what it is. And we challenged them from that moment onward. So that, yes, is very raw. And yes, I have kind of channeled my energy into my campaigning work. But when I do discuss it, I do, I, I mm. do feel that same pain. It never goes away. You know, it's still that sharp pain in my heart to think that, you know, how you can treat human beings in that fashion uh, and speak to people like that, you know, especially when it's such horrific circumstances so yes my uh, this has helped my campaigning and yes I do get angry when I when I think about the government that we currently have and and the way they behave towards Muslims and we have a prime minister that calls Muslim women bank robbers and letterboxes and perpetuates a very Islamophobic narrative still today you know uh, we're still fighting uh, for a definition of Islamophobia when we've already you know, defined anti-Semitism, and we're constantly struggling to fight. You know, for for Muslims and 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 to to be recognised that we're not all terrorists. You know, we are we are law-abiding, educated people. But you know, and and this is why I I do what I do. Another thing I kind of want to focus on, because obviously you are very pro-education, and now you've got this this project you're working on. You've also been. Um, as you said, you were accused of being sort of uh, racist, even though you do a lot of work for people that are not uh, from the South Asian community. Um, particularly, I kind of want to hone in on the Shukri Abdi case. And I, you know, we interviewed you uh, earlier earlier on in the year. In, uh, it was last year, sorry, uh, last year in regards to um, her death by drowning, which was ruled as an accident uh, mm. with the coroner, um, and that you're going to take it uh, to court and see how it goes. Can you explain a little bit about the case and yeah. what the developments are on that? Yeah. So. Uh, sadly, Shukri was a daughter and a sister of the Ummah, and her, her, when I read her uh, about her death, you know, a visible Muslim uh, Somali uh, refugee child found in the water and the case is closed, tragic accident, something didn't sit right with 
And as soon as I, the day came out in the paper, and the next day I took a National Express and went to Bury. Sister Shabnam Gulsoom, who lives in the Bury area, contacted me and said, my, something ain't right about this case. So I went to Bury. I went to see the family with Shabnam. We stayed with them literally for a week to find out what exactly happened. And the mother explained to us the bullying and the fact that she what she was facing and, you know, and, and the constant um, and the police, the way the police spoke to the family again, because the mother... Um, you know, her Eng- she understands English very well, but the you know the way the police spoke to her, to her in a very uh, derogatory manner, and telling her, look, you know. So the, the the funny thing was they released a statement about her Shukri's death before even telling the family that it was a tragic accident. And that's how the extent of uh, of uh, of uh, how appalling the family was treated. And from the sec- from the day go they have have the mother has spoken about how the police have spoken to her and how they have behaved towards in an appalling fashion um so she the mother told us that shukri was being bullied she told us uh she's she'd been to the school and logged uh and and they didn't log the complaints when the, you know the school did this internal investigation they apparently didn't log the complaint so they did a whitewash report you know the way greater manchester police handled this case was appallingly um and we kind of you know, got a legal team together who worked pro bono for the family, you know, Teek Malik, um, Ashley Underwood QC, a great legal team. Um, and, um, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, they work, they've worked tirelessly for this uh, for this case um, to hold those authorities to account that didn't keep this child safe within the school gates. The mother came from Somalia, from a war-torn country for safety and yet to find her own child you know, found uh, drowned in the water. And, you know, and now the family are taking the case further. They are suing the police, the police uh, for institutional racism. Um, And, you know, what the coroner delivered as a tragic accident, we knew this was going to be the outcome because they all work together in Manchester. They're all mates kind of thing, you know. So we kind of knew this was going to be the outcome. But obviously, when you fight for justice, it doesn't stop. It's going to continue. We're going to fight till we do get justice. but the sadly, with this case, we were all about fighting for justice, and we invited all communities, especially the Somali communities, to work with us um, and to help with the campaign. You know, because we're not Somali speakers, and we need uh, we need uh, you know we needed people from the Somali community to help. And she, as Zamzam, the mother of Shukri, ha- had uh, some support from the very Somali community, but you know she in regards to context of helping with the case, there wasn't as many, as much support. And I'm obviously from, originally my parents are from Pakistan and I'm British Pakistani. Shabnam Kalsumi is, is a British Pashtun and Abdul Aziz is Jamaican. And when we did approach certain communities, they were very hostile in nature towards us. They didn't like the fact that we weren't Somali. We dealt with a lot of inherent racism within within the uh, within the black communities for not being from those communities. Um, you know, I've been witch hunted on Twitter, but I've had to take my uh, account down. You know, just because I've spoke, just because I've been fighting for this child, and the family have witnessed this and they've seen this. When I've called out the MPs in the local area, James Frith, Tamor Tariq. Rashi Shori for not doing anything for this child um, uh, while they were dancing in shopping centres, you know, at the time of the death and pushing out the narrative, tragic accident, tragic accident. They were all Labour MPs and they did nothing to help this family. And they turned up on the day of the janazah 
and they did their, you know, their picture moments, you know, get their photo ops. Then the next day they promised the family on the pretext that we are going to come and help you with the with accommodation to rehouse the family because the mother wanted to be moved because she lived so closely to the school and it was such bad memory. Uh, the next day, they all three men turned up to the house and the family obviously had family there and they're all grieving. And uh, um, and we'd been to the Janaza and then we'd the, everyone from the Janaza went to the school to have a protest because they were angry as, as to why this child, child had died. Um, and then when I got back to the house um, and I went into the house, the family said to me, Maz, you know, um, these three uh, these three men came to the house and they were saying you're a bad person and I was like what and they said for an hour they, they were there for an hour and 20 minutes to talk about housing and they said they spoke for housing for 10 minutes and for hour and 10 minutes they slandered my name to the family in front of the whole of the of, of their relatives saying she's a bad person because I called them out for not doing anything and this is how the local MPs uh uh, treat treat a woman so much misogyny so much uh, so much uh, hate and so much rubbish to to uh, to defame my character and, and the family and, the, and still today we we speak to them every single day you know just on, on the call to her now because we know we're obviously helping with the case further um, and this is the type this is what the injustices you go through um, as when you as you fight tirelessly, and also for, from certain parts, certain people in Birmingham, from some of the Somali part communities who wanted to hijack the campaign from us and told us to f off, f off, and we are going to hand take this case over now because you're not Somali and this and that. I've been ambushed. Really, you face so for sticking up for. Yeah. I've been ambushed in Birmingham wow. by a group of Somali okay. women as well. You don't understand. It's been really, really toxic really really toxic and and but we are there to fight justice we're not there yeah. we're, we're all about unity we're all about working with everyone but sadly you know there are people with their own agendas there are a lot of narcissistic personalities there are a lot of people who will say so much lies to defame and cause so much um so much negative rubbish against you you know they've slandered my father in the process on twitter saying oh you know she uh, she's trying to keep her dad's name relevant None of these will look into your work of what you've been doing from day dot since you, my father's died. They'll just attack you with unfounded allegations. And the mm. family know, the mother Zamzam knows this. She, she said to me, look, Maz, you, Shabnam, and um, Abdulaziz have been here from day one for me. Still, every single day, we the MPs didn't rehouse the mother. We did. We rehoused the mother to another area. We mm. did that, but the MPs haven't done anything for her. Yet they will sit back and push, constantly push the police narrative. It's a tragic accident. Have secret meetings with the police. I, I just want to provide a little bit of context because some of the audience might not be um, familiar with the complexities of the case. So uh, obviously, so, she, so Shikri um, Abdi, she died after entering the River Irwell Berry in Lancashire. It was on the 27th of June, 2019. And obviously the five children can't, can't be named and won't be named for legal reasons. Um, and, and on the 4th of December, Coroner Joanne Kersley said, there was no evidence whatsoever to suggest that Shikri was pushed into the river. Um, on the way to the river, the court had heard in particular, child one had said, if you don't get in the water, I'll kill you. But the coroner said this was not meant with with malice so it's a really you know it's a really complex case we'll put a link up on the uh 
podcast so that people can read more uh, about it and the and the interview we, we did with you. I know you had also said in our original uh, article interview that so Broad, Broad Oak Sports College has since closed and it essentially rebranded itself as Hazelwood High School. Um, I know, according to you, Maz, you said that the school was supposed to hold a memorial for Shikri. It never happened. I did um, contact the school um, at the time of the article and they, they didn't give a comment on it. Uh, they refused to uh, give me any other additional information when I pressed them on it. So have you had any further interaction with the school itself about the lack of memorial or or anything really on that no it's 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 a complete cover-up by the school they've tried to move away from uh, from you know this this particular school broadock sports college is a very bad name in the area uh, you know this is a this isn't the first incident there was a teacher in 2013 caroline bailey who was bullied by teachers at this school and she committed suicide it's all over in the papers it's all there the school has a very very bad reputation it's been under the the inspection of um uh, what's the school board called again of Ofsted so if you look at the Ofsted reports of the school it, you know they've been under they've been under surveillance for a very long time so with the Shukri Abdi case they obviously wanted to move away from it so they renamed it to Hazelwood High School they changed the uniform you know the children aren't allowed to talk about her you know if they are they'll get into trouble you know the uh, at the beginning a lot of children were telling us what were what happened and their parents came with statements and when we did the initial protest outside the school when it was when the school was closed let me make that clear um the parents came and told us that the, you know child one had had done this to their children and they'd shown us pictures and then but when it came to giving a statement they all backed off because of the pressure the school put them under by basically saying if you talk you know it's not you know so they were put under a lot of pressure not to speak so a lot of the statements that were, were given to us initially didn't didn't, didn't fall through but they, they fell through because of the pressures of the school uh who 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 didn't want uh shukri's name can to I, be spoken about because when we're talking about this case we've also obviously mentioned your father's case and I'm thinking about kind of the, um, the the structural side of things that I think, you know, when, when you talk about campaigning for justice, as you say, a lot of it is beyond, okay, fine, that they, they might have ruled Shukri's death as an accident, but but you and the family believe that, that there's there's a lot more to it and it could be many years before justice is truly kind of um, had. And I think also in the UK, you look at cases like the the Hillsborough tragedy that took place and for how many years the families of, of those um, football fans had to fight to to get justice for their um, for their loved ones. How I think I'm trying to understand um, how you're able to to kind of persevere and push through when I think when you look historically, we know that the system is flawed. We know that the system will look to cover up the police. And, and at every level, as you say, MPs will come on the doorstep and, and will say things and schools will silence families to, to make sure that the, the prevailing narrative, the mainstream narrative is maintained. Um, how do you find the kind of strength and courage to kind of push through that and really fight for justice when you know that the, that the odds are so stacked against you throughout? I think if you look at... Um 
Hey, let me give you an example. There's a young brother called Shabraj. My dad loved him very much. Um, he's a young brother in Birmingham. Um, you know, he, the, this, this young brother, my dad, he used to always take the chair for my dad. My dad had a lot of love and respect for him. He organized a protest for dad. And, um, and then a lot of people, thousands were going to turn up. And then the police put pressure on the local mosque, Green Lane Mosque, and said, you've got to basically stop this protest. They, the mosque, Dis discredited this poor young lad tried to say he's got mental health issues and whether he has or not you know I think personally a lot of us all have mental health issues you know we struggle through life every day they tried to dehumanize this young lad and tried to stop the, the protest that's how how places uh, uh, um, institutions and, 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 and sadly masjids will go to silence our voices and for me to see what they did to this young young brother really like may, pushes me to carry on you know I've people have defamed my character they've dragged my name through the mud they've dragged my father's name through the mud through the campaigning for for shukri but i'll still persevere on because i know i'm not doing anything wrong i know i don't have an agenda i know i'm doing this uh through through to fight purely for justice and i've got allah watching me and he's my witness and he is my protector so i will continue to fight on because i have nothing to prove to anyone all i know is when injustice is done we cannot sit there in silence we have to stand up and speak out otherwise you're taking the side of the oppressor they'll spread lies about you they'll say the worst things about you they'll say defame your character but you have to stay strong and believe me it's not been an easy journey my mom watches me and she's like what are you doing why are you letting these people do this to you you know i said my mom you know allah's allah's, allah's planted this path for me Really, you know, from my career before, you know, eight years before this, I was working in events. I was completely in another world. It's directed me this way, you know, and I seem to get through every single challenges. And it's been a very lonely journey, bro. It's, you know, a lot of people just do not get, I've even got family members that just don't get my journey. It's a very, very lonely journey, but I persevere on, you know, because for me, it's, I don't want anyone to experience the pain. And sadly, this pain and this struggle is real and it's going on for many many families um a lot of cases aren't highlighted aren't highlighted and people don't know about people don't speak you know some yeah, many cultures don't speak english they, they can't challenge authorities and we have to be that voice I think, for the voiceless. Uh, almost uh quite tragically but but your experience firsthand of of dealing with uh the case involving your father puts you in a in in a one of the best positions let's say to help and support other families who are going through something similar because as much as people want to be able to help like when you see a tragedy in the community or even like if someone has lost a, a family member be it a, a, a father or, or whatever it's only if, if when someone else has kind of been through it and experienced the same thing that there's a, an element of empathy that can kind of come close if you know what i mean like otherwise everyone's just kind of paying lip service but yeah. when you felt something yourself you can really kind of lend and and, and um, be there as a sort of guiding hand I guess through the process especially when it comes to dealing with the injustice and everything else that that you specifically um, dealt with with your father's case so I, I think finally just looking um, forward to the work that you're you're, you're doing now um, and the there's a, a an educational website that you're launching um, education for peace in remembrance of, of Muhammad Salim your father um, what, what's the um, aim of that particular platform and, and I guess what, where do you hope the next few years will, will, will take you in this work? 
Well, the next few years will certainly be still fighting justice for Shukri alongside Shabnam Kalsum and Abdul Aziz and helping Zamzam Arab Ture, the mother of Shukri, um, to to try and get back to a normal life. Um, and you know, she's also had another baby since since Shukri's death, and and trying to normalize uh, a life, a family life for her because she's she ha she has a lot of pain, and being that support for her, that will be my number one priority. And secondly, of course, my education for peace workshops are about you know right now we know equality and diversity is a big thing in the workplace so we know um after the george floyd uh after george floyd's death you know black lives matter you know or you know the uk i've never seen the uk this way ever you know suddenly in all the roles you see on the job websites if you are looking out for a job <laughs> are all equality diversity roles people want to include uh in, be more inclusive in the workplace so i think my um equality and diversity educational peace for peace workshops um will be will be hopefully will be accepted uh positively um you know obviously with the work first workshop it went extremely positively um, but then obviously people didn't agree with what I had to say about Islamophobia and, and the attacks on Muslim women in particularly today and uh, and the demonization of Muslims in the media, then they will look at they will start trying to nitpick and try and find faults in, in, in your character, which completely, you know, uh, it's a struggle that, you know, most people that are fighting for justice go through. So for me, it is all about education. It is it is going to be about my workshops It is going to be uh, supporting those um, that need my help and I'll always Ruxana. be there awesome. for them. Well, thank you very much for, for, for being here today <laughs> and for sharing. Any, uh, Ruxana, any, any last thoughts from yourself before we end? Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, because we've obviously had lots of conversations about it, haven't we? Um, and, you know, just as a side note, that I think the work that you're doing is is wonderful and I think you definitely uh, fought against the rhetoric that women, particularly Muslim women, are weak and we're feeble. Which Traditionally submissive, yeah. right? <laughs> According yeah. to David Cameron. <laughs> and you are definitely one of those people who was not submissive and all the work that you're doing is, is great. We'll put all the links up. Um, and just thanks again for, you know, being so sort of open and, and willing to talk about such a raw and personal thing. We, we appreciate it. And I'm sure the TV podcast audience do too. So that was our conversation with Maz. Um, I think, you know, straight away, it's, um, I'm, I'm very thankful to her for, for agreeing to, to come on the podcast and to, um, recall i guess the events of what happened um eight years ago in, in involving her father um as you heard you know it, it's quite uh difficult um and, and incredibly traumatic um the experiences that she had and i feel that um she's essentially she's done her father proud because she's taken what's happened and she's kind of preserved his, his legacy um, and and has you know spent the last eight years campaigning to try and help people or to try and prevent I guess people also um, finding themselves in situations like her and her family did after her her father was tragically killed. Um, yeah, it, it's I, I think for me there's there's an element of despair when it comes to to dealing with the the, the area of, of you know seeking justice, especially in these kind of cases where there is a lot of um, structural bias and and issues to overcome. But she kind of also hit the nail on the head that you know if we don't actively get involved, step up, and do our bit, then we're essentially passively siding with the oppressor. Um, 
and and that was quite strong and, and when she said that I, I realized that you know it is important that we um we are active and we do get involved and, and especially with a case like shukri abdi's i'm sure most people would have come across it um and would have seen articles about it but but it's important that as and where possible we we do put pressure and we do um campaign and get out and protest and whatever we can utilize our voices to get justice for the family and and to inshallah hope and and see that we 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 prevent things like this happening in the future um and ensuring that those who um are at fault uh are, are held accountable be it you know on the structural side or indeed with, with the actual case itself and, and generally cases themselves um so yeah that, that's it for another podcast thank you guys for joining us uh, inshallah we'll be back next week for another great podcast uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already uh, if you're listening to this then check out the youtube channel if you're on youtube then you can subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and yeah stay safe guys we'll be back soon